Well, I just want to say it's uh, it is an honor to be here with, with you all this morning and to open up God's Word. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, it will be in the book of Job, chapter 42. So if you know where the Psalms are, just hang a left. Uh, it's a book right before the, the Psalms. Um, yeah, just as uh, one sister church to another, I just want to say, yeah, thank you all for your faithful witness down here. It's a joy whenever we have um, people who uh, maybe have visited our church who live down this way uh, to be able to say, hey, listen, there's a great church down, uh, down in the Stafford area. So just, yeah, thank you for your faithful witness of Christ. Just want to encourage you to continue to, to lean upon him in, in good days and in hard days. And uh, Kelton, I just want to say publicly how, uh, how enriching it is to my soul just to see how you've grown over the years, brother. Um, I've known Kelton for a long time. So uh, it's been some, some 12 or 13 years um, ago. We did a little Bible study at a, um, a cafe across uh, from Capitol Hill Baptist Church and talked about how we'd preach if we got the opportunity to. And uh, brother, I just want to say publicly, it's been a, been a joy to watch you, you grow in, in God's grace. So, and, and you too, Becca, uh, it's been sweet to watch y'all's marriage grow. And yeah, thankful for both of you. I'm going to pray once more, and then we're going to go to um, this weighty and wonderful portion of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is committed to us growing into the, the likeness of your Son, and that you use all means necessary, and that you are wise enough to know what we need and when we need it. You know what is good to keep in our lives. You know what is good to to take away. You know what is good to say yes to and what is to say no to. You know what is good to to show us plainly. And you know what is good for us to remain um, without understanding. So we pray that this morning as we come to your word that you would grant us humility and teachability and that you would... You would change us through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see what you say in the scriptures. You give us ears to hear it, minds to understand it, hearts to believe it, wills that are surrendered to obey it, affections that are warmed to love you, and God, bodies that are readied to to follow you wherever you may lead, even if it be through the valley of the shadow of death. Lord, we pray particularly this morning for those who are suffering that you might use your word to encourage them and instruct them. We pray for those who are yeah, not suffering that you might help them to store up truths in the, the storehouse of their heart for days where, where hardship may come. And Lord, would you help all of us to see Jesus more clearly and to love him more purely. And we pray that you would hasten the day that you send your son It might even be before this sermon is over. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in this room, um, there's a a lot of of different kinds of people here. There's uh, more seasoned saints, and there's there's younger saints. There's men, there's there's women. Uh, There are people in different economic situations, maybe different political affiliations. Uh, some of you are very accomplished. Some of you, um, yeah, n- not, not at all. Some of you, right now, things couldn't be wet- better in your life. Others, things couldn't be worse. Some of you uh, maybe are indeed believers and following the Lord Jesus. Others of you are not even sure if there's a God, and you're not even sure why you're here at a church this morning, but you're just looking for answers. 
There's lots of things that, that would mark us as different this morning as we come in here. But there's one thing that everybody has in common if you live on this planet. And that is that you will suffer. Nobody makes it through this life without suffering. Some of you already in this life have, have suffered very much. Maybe even feels like it's, it's the only thing that you ever are going through is some sort of trial or tribulation. Some of you, maybe it's, it's been very little so far. Praise the Lord for that. But all of us will endure suffering. Maybe it's a betrayal of someone that we just never thought would turn on us. Maybe a spouse, a friend, a child. Some of us have been, have been abandoned by people that we, we loved and we thought we could count on. Some of us have endured abuse. Maybe at the hands of people who actually their whole job was to protect us. But they use that position and authority to harm us. Maybe some of you are enduring the trial of a financial, just you're being crushed right now and you're not even sure how you're going to pay a bill, how you're going to keep the lights on or, or stay in your home. Some of you feel very lonely. Even a, a place like this where it's, it's evident that there's love that you just kind of always feel on the outside and alone, overlooked, forgotten. Maybe it's, maybe it's that dark cloud of despair for you that just never seems to go away. Depression, darkness, anxiety, fear, and you don't even know why. It just always seems to be there. Or maybe it's your body. It's hard when your body just doesn't work like it used to. And there's constant pain and aches, weary with sickness. Everybody in this life suffers. But the question you've got to wrestle with is, do you believe that there is meaning in your misery? Do you believe that there is purpose in your pain? And I'm not just talking about these everything works together kind of mantras that the world's like, everything will turn out okay, there's a better thing around the corner. I'm talking about, do you believe that God, that there is a God, and that that God uses everything, even pain, for his good and his glorious purposes that oftentimes is beyond our, our ability to comprehend. This is what we're going to wrestle with this morning in the book of Job. Job chapter 42. In case you're not familiar with this story of Job, the first two chapters we meet a man named Job. And he was, a, he was a good man. Not a perfect man, but God says that he's blameless and upright, that he, he turns away from evil. He fears God. Yet, for some mysterious reason, God gave Satan permission to afflict Job. And Satan did just that. Two waves of brutal attacks stripped Job of everything that he had. Took his fame, took his fortune, took his, his health, took his family. He lost 10 children in an accident in a moment. Complete devastation in this man's life. And Job responded in faith. 
with a famous passage that says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then after that response, Job drug himself out to the city dump. They call it the ash heap because it's where you burn trash. He, he drug himself out there and there he sat. Heart heavy. Body broken. Eyes weeping. Sores seeping. And then three friends arrive. The scriptures say they, they came to show sympathy and comfort to Job. Which they did for seven days. But then after seven days, their silence was broken and things began to unravel quite a bit. Their conversation takes place in chapter 3 through 31 of Job. And, and in those chapters, Job's friends accuse Job of something. What did they accuse him of? Yeah, you, you've, you've got to have some sort of secret sin in your life that God is punishing you for. Because everybody knows that bad things don't happen to good people. But Job argued his innocence. Even so much so that he even began to accuse God of doing him wrong. He even said, God has made me his enemy. And then this guy named Elihu comes on the scene. He says, actually, both, both Job and Job's friends are wrong. Job's friends are wrong because his suffering is not due to his sin. But Job is wrong too because he's been justifying himself at God's expense. See, one of the things we learn in the book is that Job was not suffering because he sinned. But he did sin in his suffering. He began to accuse God of treating him wrongly. He justified himself at God's expense. Well, in the midst of this conversation with Elihu, God arrives. Job the whole time has been requesting an appointment with the Almighty. Saying, I want to talk to him. I want to straighten things out. I want to show him the evidence. And I want to hear what he's going to say to me. Well, God, God shows up. He requested the appointment and he got it. And in chapters 38 through 41, there's 40 questions that God asks Job. They're all questions that basically orient around, where were you when I created the world? Do you know about the lanternfish 36,000 feet down at the bottom of the Mariana Trench, Job? Do you know about how mountain goats give birth, Job? Do you know how snow happens, Job? Are you, do you know where the storehouses are, where I store a pail? Do you know why the water goes just so far on the beach and I tell it to stop? Do you know why it stops right there, Job? No, you don't. And basically, God walked Job with these 40 questions through the known universe, showing him that Job doesn't know anything about how the physical world works. Sure, he can study and scientific advances teach us some stuff, but we really don't know how all this goes down. God's going to be asking Job a question. Is it possible that if you don't know what's happening with what you can see, that you might not understand in all the other things, including your suffering? And God uses this encounter with Job to teach him and us an essential truth. God uses suffering to shape your faith and strengthen your hope in him. 
God uses suffering to shape your faith and to strengthen your hope in Him. There is meaning in your misery. And we're going to see that as we dive into the text here. We're going to follow kind of three waves. The first is we're going to see that God refined Job's faith. God refined Job's faith. Let's look at the first six verses here of chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then he quotes God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge. Job says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Quoting God again in verse 4, Here and I will speak, I will answer, I I will question you, you make it known to me. Verse 5, Job again, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job's faith, it began strong. And he worshiped God when all was well, and he initially worshiped God when everything was lost. But as minutes turned into hours, and hours turned into days, and days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into chapter 7, verse 3 calls months of emptiness. So this suffering of Job went on months. And as it did, Job's faith began to struggle. Now, I'm not implying in any way that Job lost his faith. I think even even in his darkest hours, Job serves as a good example of how to keep praying, keep trusting, keep looking up. But, But as Job looked to God and saw nothing, and listened for God and heard nothing, his faith was strained. Some of you know exactly what that's like in the midst of your suffering, crying, looking, and feeling like all you hear is, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the, the maddening silence of God. And in the midst of that maddening silence, Job began to doubt things that he'd never doubted before. Has God made me his enemy? Has he for, forgotten me? Has he forsaken me has he left me alone to die does he love me anymore you see one of the things that suffering sets the stage for in regards to to temptation is for us to wonder if god still loves us this is why hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 is so clear my son and daughters do not be weary when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one that he loves God loved Job and he was using his pain and his affliction that he was enduring to refine his faith and this is what Job says in verse 1 I know that you can do all things no plan of yours can be thwarted you see before all of this Job knew that God was generally sovereign over over all things. He 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 knew that, but but he's learning now through this trial that God was specifically sovereign and purposeful in all of his pain. You see, Job was learning that he didn't need to fear while he sat in the pit of despair because God's arm is not too short to reach him there. 
Job was learning that God could, could stop his suffering at any moment. And if he didn't, it's only because God had more good to give Job from it. We heard this verse this morning. Consider Romans 8 again. We know God works all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Not all things are good in this world. There's a lot of things that are not good. But what we learn from that verse is that there is a good God who's always working all things, including evil things, together for the good of his people. And that's what Job's learning here. He's learning to believe that God can use even evil things like natural disasters, terrorist attacks, the death of a children, the loss of his health, all things that Job endured, that God can even use those to bring about good. So one of the things we've got to learn in this life is that all of our afflictions are wisely prescribed by the great physician. And that's not matter, that's not a matter merely of, of theology. This is a matter of survival. Because if you don't believe that God rules over your suffering, that God's in charge of all of the suffering that happens, then you've got to answer the question, then who oversees your suffering? Is Satan in charge? Is it just the universe? Just chance? Is that, is that, is that what you're going to lean on? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said, a man who suffered very much. He said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. That my trials were never measured out by him in their weight and quantity. One of the things we need to understand is that nothing, absolutely nothing, comes into our lives or comes out of our lives that does not first pass through the hands of a good God who purposes all things, even evil things, for our good and for His glory. Now I need to make something very clear here. God never does evil. He is good and He only ever does good. So evil that happens to you is not God doing evil to you. God never does evil. He only ever does good. But he is the kind of God who can use what they intended for evil for good. You remember Joseph's story? That's basically his quotation at the end of it where he says, uh, what, God, what you intended for evil, God used for good. Joseph could see all of the suffering and betrayal that he went through that God had somehow, like a judo master, taken this evil and then used it for good in a way that only a sovereign good God could. Job's learning that here. And it's the lesson that all of us who are in the schoolhouse of suffering are required to, to learn. You see, Job didn't know what God knew. And in his ignorance, he accused God of acting wrongly. But, but God was refining that Job's faith so that he now admits, verse 3, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You see, God's questions to Job had humbled him. 
It, it, it helped him to, to withdraw his complaint when he realized one of the most essential truths of life. It's this, that God knows what we don't know and sees what we don't see. God knows what we don't know and sees what we don't see. And because he's good and because he's all-powerful, we can trust him in our ignorance. You see, God sees the beginning to the end and every single teardrop in between. The scriptures say he catches it in a bottle, sees every one of them. All those tears you've cried, you feel like nobody gets you, God sees and knows and cares. Job says that God knows things that are too wonderful for me. Above our capacity to comprehend, out of our jurisdiction to judge, out of our ability to alter. Isaiah 55 says it this way, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, even if God explained to us what he was doing in the midst of our suffering, or if he explained to Job, Job wouldn't have been able to grasp it in the midst of it. It's the same with us. My wife, Carrie, who's here this morning, she had a father who was very difficult to, to love. Uh, her father left her and her family when, when she was 11 years old. Um, he went off and lived a very selfish, indulgent lifestyle. And Carrie, basically her posture was, whatever, I'm, I'm kind of done with him. Until later on when she was in college and she, she met a friend and became really burdened for this friend's salvation and began really praying. And one night she found herself weeping over this, this, this guy's sal- salvation, just was moved by this, this stranger. This guy, is, he's, going, he's going to hell apart from, from God's grace. And, and through that, God convicted her that if you can feel this sort of compassion toward a stranger who you don't know, I want you to have that sort of compassion towards your father. And yes, he's never going to be a dad to you, but he's your father, and I want you to pray for him. Carrie did that. She prayed regularly. She, she yeah, shared the gospel with him. She tried to minister to him. She, she responded in ways that I think are more than commendable. For 20 years, and as she did, she, she believed that God would use her love and her prayers to bring her father to faith. And then one day we got the call that Mike had died. We didn't speak to Mike in his last three days, and he would have known who to call out to in his moment of trial. So the Lord knows. But as far as we know, we saw no reason to believe that he repented. As you can imagine, that... That sent Carrie's faith into a little bit of a tailspin. She was so disorienting. God, why would you change my heart and make me plead for my dad's salvation and then him die? I don't understand. It's hard. Still strange and mysterious and hard. She feels like she was shaken, but as she was shaken, she fell where believers need to fall, which is upon the scriptures. And she found a refuge in Psalm 131, where David said this, 
I do not concern myself with things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. Friends, there's many things in this life that we will just not understand. But you don't have to wonder about things too wonderful for you. Rather, we come and we look to the Lord and we entrust our souls, our suffering souls to Him. And as you bring it to Him and say, God, why this? What, what, what are you doing? And as you do that and you keep your eyes up, your eyes are on what? On Him. And it's in that wrestling with Him that God changes you. That He teaches you who He is. And that He is not cruel but he is wise in ways that are beyond too wonderful for us. And we need to, to surrender and to trust. That's what happened to Job here. Verse 5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. You see, before Job's trial, before he'd endured all of these afflictions, he'd heard truths about God, but now my eyes see you. Through the suffering, the spiritual cataracts on his eyes had been, had been removed. And he now sees God in a way that he never could have had he not been through the valley of the shadow of death. God took everything from Job so that Job could see God more clearly. And for some, that sounds so strange. But one of the things that is very clear from cover to cover in the scriptures is that there is nothing more precious than beholding God as He is. And to see Him standing over us, over our suffering, in all of His sovereign splendor, saying, I am faithful. My plans are wise. I love you. I am good. This will work for your good. Trust me. I'm holding you fast. It can be well with your soul when all is wrong because I am with you. Having that is a treasure worth more than silver or gold from here to the moon. And it doesn't come easy. And it doesn't come quickly, typically. This is a long road for Job. By the way, that's one of the reasons I think it's written the way that it is. A lot of times people read chapters 1 and 2, and then chapters 38 through 40, because like the middle is so weird. And you read through, and you're like, I can't tell who's lying, I can't tell what's... It's like, but that's how suffering is. It's long and drawn out. And how did seeing God in this way affect Job? Well, verse 6, it says, I despise, he says, I despise myself and repent. You see, till now, Job felt justified in his complaint. He thought he could run the universe better than God. He was looking for the suggestion box. I had some ideas about how we could do things a little better around here. But now that Job saw God rightly as holy and wise, he sees himself rightly as sinful and foolish. Job had been put in his place and God had taken his you see, Job had not suffered in order to bring all of this, or not sinned in order to bring all of the suffering upon him, but he did sin while he was suffering. Job saw here God clearly, and he repented of his sin sincerely. 
of him cursing the day that he was born, of all of his complaints raised up against God, his desire to die rather than to live, his accusations against God, his boasting of his own righteousness at God's expense. And you notice here, what does God do about Job's sin? What happens in this whole section? What does God do? He draws near to Job. He drew near to him. It's called grace. And and where did he draw near to Job? While he sat on the ash heap. And when did he draw near to Job? At his worst hour. Job had not even repented yet. But God came anyway. It's not like God's sitting back there like, oh, Job's finally got it together. Good, now I'm going to go down and talk to him. That's not how God deals with us. Praise the Lord for that. He comes to us in the midst of our, of our fists raised and in the midst of our, in our sorrow and our confusion. He comes to us in the midst of us not being, having it all together. And this is where Job's story points us to the greater story, the story of Jesus. You see, all of us have treated God wrongly. We've sinned against him. We've accused him of running the universe wrongly. We've pridefully stood up and said, I wouldn't do it this way. What's wrong with you? My God wouldn't do this. And all those sorts of things that, that flow oftentimes out of suffering, but it's, it's a manifestation of pride. And how does, what, if God were fair with us, what would he do? He would just be game over. But what God, does God do? Well, Romans 5.8, he demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ came to us. Jesus is the greater Job. He came to us while we were still on our ash heap of sin. Jesus, the truly blameless, upright one, always turning away from evil. And then he willingly suffered and died on a cross, not for his sins, but for hours. And then he rose from the dead. And it's through beholding Jesus by faith and believing upon him that we see God, that God revealed himself to Job through suffering. He does the same thing for us. Some of you can look back to your own testimonies of how God brought you to himself and it was by him bringing you to the end of yourself. Well, if God hadn't taken everything from Job, he never would have known God as deeply. Which I want to ask you before we move on to the next section here. Would you be willing to lose everything if it meant that you got more of God? Or that you got to know him better? When you begin to see him as more precious than everything else, it makes suffering more endurable. Not easy. Never easy. Second thing, verses 7 through 9, we see that God reconciled Job's friends. So God refined Job's faith in 1 through 6, and now God reconciled Job's friends. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord spoke to Eliphaz the Temanite. My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
So after God dealt graciously with Job, he's now going to deal with Job's friends. Now, it's difficult for us when you read through that section that I was referring to a moment ago to discern when Job's friends are speaking truth and when they're speaking error. That's one of the trickiest things in reading the book of Job is when their friends are talking, you're like, that actually sounds true. You're like, ah, that can't be true. And you're trying to, you're, you're, it's, it's cloudy. But judgment, though it's difficult for us, is not difficult for the Lord. He sees and sifts everything perfectly. And that's why God calls Eliphaz, the oldest and the first to speak, to account. Now, when God says right here that that Job has spoken rightly of me, he's referring to Job's confession and repentance that we've seen happen in chapter 42. Right? Job had responded in faith and God extended forgiveness. But now it's Job's friends who need forgiveness. Because for 19 chapters, they've been slandering God, saying that God had been judging Job for some kind of secret sin in his life. Which, by the way, is a good lesson for us to be really slow to interpret what's going on in somebody's life. And be putting all your social media posts, which I don't know if any of you do. I don't follow any of you. I don't know. I know what I'm saying, though, I've seen so much motive attributed to people and so much of this is what's going on in their life. I just want to encourage you to read the book of Job and to be, let's be a little more humble about what God's doing in other people's lives. But for 19 chapters, God says, you've been slandering me. You see, God didn't afflict Job because he was unrighteous. Actually, it's the exact opposite. God chose Job to suffer because of his righteousness, and he knew that in him he would be glorified. Now, Job's friends certainly sinned against Job. They hurt him, they offended him, they slandered him. But it's not as significant, here we see, as as their sins against God. Which, by the way, you always want to begin vertical, Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And then we move horizontally. So easy for us often to just go, uh, I want to try and make things right here. When we first got to have to go, God, I've sinned against you. God is teaching them that here. And there's some serious irony in this text, right? I mean, Eliphaz and his crew, through the whole thing, they thought that Job was in sin and was being punished by God. But in fact, they're the ones who are guilty before God of sin, and they're the ones who need forgiveness. They had stood over Job in judgment, and now they need Job to come and stand over them and to pray so that God won't judge them. The irony is pretty thick here. God graciously, though, here warned them so that they could repent. By the way, sometimes when you read some of the passages of the Bible that seem very harsh, where God is warning about about hell, about judgment, about very severe wrath that's coming, that's actually a message of mercy. It's what's happening right here with these friends. It's merciful that God came in and gave them this word so that they could repent and escape judgment. God commanded them to take seven bulls and seven rams and to bring them to Job so that he could offer up a burnt offering. And then Job could pray for them. Job is here acting as an intercessor for them. Job isn't their savior, but but God tells Job here how they can be saved. In faith, they must bring an innocent animal to die in their place. Its flesh will be consumed like fire right in front of them, which is a picture of what would have happened to them had they not repented of their sins. 
And then Job's friends receive forgiveness. How? Did you catch it? By grace, through faith, according to God's promise. This, by the way, is how people in the Old Testament are saved. They're not saved any differently than people in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you're saved by grace, through faith, in the one who would come, of which all of the the sacrifices point to. You're saved on credit. Or in the New Testament, you're saved by grace, through faith, in the one who did come and paid it all. You're saved by debit. So it's always saved by grace through faith in Christ who fulfills it all. And this scene foreshadows Jesus. Just as Job's self-righteous friends hurled insults at Job, so Jesus was unjustly accused by a bunch of self-righteous religious leaders. Just as Job was accused of suffering because God's hand was against him, so Jesus had those false accusations against him. The parallels are intended to be striking. We have broken, beaten men outside the city, weeping and bleeding, and it appeared that God was against them, but neither Job nor Jesus were on their hills because of their sin, but because of their righteousness. See, God said of Job that he was blameless and upright and feared him, turned away from evil, which of course is a picture of there's only one who ever truly did that perfectly, Jesus, who had no sin, who was truly righteous, who persevered in his sinlessness and died atop a hill called Calvary to receive God's wrath, not for his sin, but for those who sinned against him. And then he acts as a high priest, praying forgiveness over them so they can be reconciled with the Father. You see, Jesus is the greater Job, who then rose from the dead, and he, Hebrews 7, 25, ever lives to make intercession for us. This is intended to point us beyond Job to Jesus. Friends, I just want to say today, if you're here and, and you, you know yourself to not be a Christian, I want you to know that here, you see this man, Job, and he suffered, and you see these other friends, and whether you kind of think you have it all together or whether all you've known is suffering and you've kind of fallen apart, Jesus is the hope of both of them. And wherever you are, in whatever your circumstance, I want you to know Jesus is what you're looking for. He is the only hope for sinners and sufferers alike. Well, finally, verses 10 through 17, we see that God restores Job's fortune. So he refined Job's faith, and then he reconciled Job's friends, and now he restores Job's fortune. Verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. When he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then he came to all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a thousand yoke of oxen and a thousand female donkeys, which I suppose is a lot. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Kezia and the name of the third Karen Hapak. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after Job lived his 140 years and saw his sons 
and his son's sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. In this final scene, God graciously restores Job. God gave Job not just what he had, but exceedingly abundantly more than he had before. His brothers and sisters here and other friends who in chapter 19 were told were estranged and had forgotten him are now sitting with him, showing him sympathy and comforting and giving him gifts which displayed now honor and esteem for him. This one who had formerly been riddled in shame. God multiplied his livestock and he gave him more children. Ten more children. Three of whose were these these daughters whose beauty was legendary. He lived to see his great, great grandchildren. Can you imagine, by the way, how rich that discipleship must have been between Job and his great-grandchildren? Just sitting around the campfire. Hey, Pop, Pop, Job, can you tell us about that time that God came and asked you all those questions again? Hey, Pop, Pop, Job, can you tell us Tell us what you learned when God asked you all those questions. Hey, Pop, Pop, Job, can you, can you imagine how rich that discipleship would have been? Which, by the way, is a lesson for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 tells you, promises you, that God gives you comfort in all of your afflictions so that you can comfort others in their afflictions. I mean, imagine anybody that you would have wanted to go to if you were going through a hard time, you'd have wanted to go to Job. Job, what do I do? Some of you are enduring suffering right now, and God has plans to use it in the lives of people 20 years from now. And I know for you that you may seem like that's that's hard consolation. I understand. But someday, when the Lord has you there and you see how He has not just healed you of your suffering, but is now using it to help others, it will be a great reward. One other thing I think is often not mentioned, but really important here. Even though God blesses Job so abundantly here, this doesn't mean that Job didn't still grieve all the stuff that he lost before. It doesn't mean that he, he didn't walk through his house and see the other family album and pull it off the shelf and sit down and see all the pictures of his children and and friends that he, he had before who were gone. It, it doesn't mean that he didn't look at that Thanksgiving table and say, I wish, there were, I wish we had all the rest of the chairs for everybody else who's not here. The reason I mention that is because I just want to be really clear. The Bible is very, very clear that the grief and sorrow is not a lack of faith. It's not a lack of trusting God. It's okay to grieve. And particularly in this holiday season, there's some of you who are going to have empty seats at tables that you wish, you wish someone you love was still able to sit there, but they're not anymore. <coughs> Just once you know it's okay to cry in that. And then no matter how good God has been to you, it's not, it's not an act of unthankfulness to still be sorrowful over sad things. And one of the most important things to notice in this whole book is, do you notice when all of this final blessing of Job happens? It happens after he repents. 
Now, why is that so significant? Because Job's, Job's devotion to the Lord is not dependent on the material blessings that God gave him, which was a lot, right? It's not like God blessed Job and then Job says, okay, you're pretty good after all, now I'm going to worship you. But just as in chapter 1, Job does not worship God because God gives him stuff which was the accusation of the devil. You remember that? Satan's like, of course he worships you. He's had a silver spoon in his mouth his whole life. Who wouldn't worship you? But this whole book has proven that that's not true. Job worships God because God gives him himself. God is Job's greatest treasure. And when Job repented right here, he had no certainty that God would give him one more cow or one more friend or one more child than what he had when he sat barren on that ash heap. But Job knew that if he had God, he had enough. This resolves the whole thing of the book. Job proves Satan wrong. Job doesn't worship God because God gives him good things. And Job worships God only because God is worthy. God doesn't need to buy his worshipers. This is why the prosperity gospel is satanic. It's it's not from the Lord. God doesn't need to give you stuff to get worship from you. And you don't just worship God because he gives you stuff. No. Now, most of us are probably tempted to think, listen, if anybody had some good coming to him, it was Job, right? I mean, he's been through some stuff, right? But... But that's not true either, is it? The fact is that Job actually doesn't deserve anything. He's a sinner to whom God graciously extended love and compassion. God's blessing of Job is rooted in God's grace toward Job. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor. Which again is the heart of the gospel. Now, what these blessings foreshadow, and this is where we'll conclude... This story ends with Job finally dying, which makes sense. He's pretty old at this point, right? Um, But that's not the end of the story. You see, the book of Job in many ways foreshadows the grand story of what God is doing in history. It mirrors the, the whole story of the Bible, right? The book of Job begins in a seemingly perfect world where Job knew nothing but the blessing of God and the fellowship with God and fellowship with other people. He and God were friends until Satan entered in the scene by the permission of God and brings pain into Job's world. And what follows is a lot of pages of death and mourning and crying and pain. Job sits in a world of suffering and confusion. Truth and lies about God swirling around and seems to drag on and on and on. But God intervenes. God enters into Job's world of suffering. He spoke to Job. He raised him to new life. Reconciled him uh, to himself. And then commissioned him to help others to be reconciled to himself calling them to repent and pointing them to the saving sacrifice. And then finally, Job is brought into a new world where his eyes see the face of God. And all the scars of days gone by are not forgotten, but are healed and forever seen in light 
of the perfect plan of a good and gracious God who is worthy of worship. That's the story of the whole Bible here in the book of Job. It ends this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be more, no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. The reason the promise from the book of Revelation is written down is the same reason that the book of Job is written down. It's because we need to know and trust and rest in the fact that God has meaning in the midst of all of our misery. He has purpose in all of our pain. God uses suffering to shape your faith and to strengthen your hope in him. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I just want to encourage you to remember that just because you have suffered in this life does not mean that God owes you anything. There's actually no promise of hope on the other side or things getting better. But that is why God has you here even today to hear this, this message of mercy so that as Job's friends heard it, you can turn and believe in Jesus. And dear Christian, I want to encourage you to take courage. If God can use the greatest evil in the history of the world, the torturing to death of his son for the greatest good in history, then he can use whatever is happening in your life for good. Lock arms. You need one another. Don't lose hope. We're almost home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would help us to receive and believe the things that you have promised. God, your ways are truly above our ways, and your thoughts are truly above ours. And Lord, we ask you to help us. Pray particularly for those who are suffering today, that you would give them something from this time together in your word that would help them to take another step and to keep their eyes fixed on you. Oh, Father, send your son soon. Fix all things. In the name of Jesus, amen.